Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai in Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the living world. Join me and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might envision and create a more flourishing future for all in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. If you'd like the opportunity to meet me in person and explore these themes in greater depth, I'd love to invite you to the Flourishing Futures Salon. This is an exciting series of intimate, curated gastronomical gatherings that combine locally sourced food and elegant wines with meaningful, thought-provoking conversation. These are enchanting, poignant and memorable evenings designed to bring together diverse perspectives with the aim of cultivating community and vibrant new partnerships. If you'd like to attend the next gathering in London, please sign up at ffsalons.com to register your interest. When we have the next date scheduled, you'll receive a private invitation and a special listener's discount. I'm excited to meet you if you choose to come. And in the meantime, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I'm in conversation with Michael Schumann, an economist, attorney, author and entrepreneur, and a leading visionary on community economics. The director of Local Economy Programmes for Neighbourhood Associates Corporation and an adjunct professor at Bard Business School in New York City, Michael is also a senior researcher for Council Fire and Local Analytics, where he has performed economic development analyses for states, local governments and businesses around North America. Credited with being one of the architects of the 2012 Jobs Act and dozens of state laws overhauling securities regulation on crowdfunding, Michael has authored, co-authored and edited many books, of which the three most recent are Put Your Money Where Your Life Is, How to Invest Locally Using Solo 401ks and Self-Directed IRAs, The Local Economy Solution, How Innovative Self-Financing Pollinator Enterprises Can Grow Jobs and Prosperity, and Local Dollars, Local Cents, How to Shift Your Money from Wall Street to Main Street. One of his previous books, The Small Mart Revolution, How Local Businesses Are Beating the Global Competition, received a bronze prize from the Independent Publishers Association for Best Business Book of 2006. A prolific speaker, Schumann has given an average of more than one invited talk per week, mostly to local governments and universities, for the past 30 years in nearly every US state and more than a dozen countries. I had the joy of meeting Michael at the Planet Local Summit and was so captivated by his passion and his practical approach to transforming local economies and livelihoods that I had to invite him onto the show. Michael, it's a great pleasure to be in conversation with you today. How are you? I am great. How are you? Very well. Slightly sweaty. It's still warm in Barcelona, (laughs) despite it being October. I'm very, very happy to be in conversation with you, especially after seeing several captivating sessions where you're speaking at the Planet Local Summit in Bristol. And I'd love to start by asking you what I invite all my guests to open the conversation with, which is what do you imagine is going on in the global human psyche right now, if we can play with that frame? Ooh, that is a really interesting question. I would say that the psyche has to be one of massive depression. Hmm. I, I feel like 
the, the planet is uh, on the precipice of some huge issues that it hasn't or it's barely addressed on, on climate and inequality and uh, destruction of the oceans, and we can go through a long list of problems. And, uh, and then there are these immediate issues. So as we're talking, war is break, broken out between Israel and Gaza, and there's been uh, more than a year of really depressing war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so I, I, I feel like the psyche has taken a number of blows. Mm. That said, I also feel like when you are depressed, you have a couple of options about how to remedy the situation. One is to just succumb to the despair and it might lead to suicide. The other is to really try in your own place, in your own home, in your own family, to solve the problems that are right in front of you. And from that, maybe gather a little bit of strength to deal with the larger issues. And for me, that is the virtue of focusing on local economies. Because local economies, we all can influence. We can see progress when we put our attention into it. And with that progress, we can maybe stand a fighting chance of dealing with these other depressing problems. Yeah. So before we dive into local economies, which I think is going to be the main thread of our conversation today, and such a rich thread, the main theme for this season in general and the podcast more broadly is exploring at its heart, really, what does flourishing mean in the face of ecological, economic and political disruptions and change? And it's gotten to the point where it's, it's really hard to ignore the fact that there is extraordinary change and turbulence beginning to unfold. And so I'd love to ask, and feel free to answer this in whatever way you would like to, what does flourishing mean for you? I think I go to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, <laughs> which is flourishing is not just meeting your basic needs of food and water. And it's not just meeting your emotional needs provided by friends, lovers, family, but it's also spiritual needs. I think we should expect higher of ourselves, higher of our species. <laughs> so flourishing means being capable of moving to that highest uh, level of achievement. It's extremely difficult to do. Mm. And, and that's why it's really aspirational rather than achievement. But if we aspire that, maybe we get, you know, 20% of what we're looking for there and it's better than nothing. So when we're thinking about a deeper set of needs, or you're talking about highest potential spiritual elements, do you think that there's something about the, the moment that in rich countries, and I'm wincing a little bit using that term because obviously in rich countries there's a lot of people who are extremely poor, but let's say the wealthiest nations with the highest GDP. Do you think that the current situation where there's so much materialism, that that gives rise to conditions where people are rethinking again, what is it that it, that, that it means to live a meaningful life? Or do you think that people are doing that in spite of the current cultural messages around buy this and you'll be prettier or fitter or, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. So 
I think it goes both ways. I think if you have very limited means, whether you're living in rich country or, or not rich country, you may decide to turn necessity into a virtue, turn your reality into a virtue and say, well, uh, it's clear looking at lots of other people that these are unnecessary needs and I can find fulfillment in other ways. Um, but it's also the case that uh, when you have a lot of wealth and people think that that wealth is bringing them greater happiness uh, and you can see more immediately the ways that it doesn't, uh, we, we rethink. Now, there is, I, I mean, I do think that people need a certain basic level yeah, sure. uh, of well-being to have the space to explore some of these other needs that are going to, I think, be more essential for delivering happiness. I mean, it's interesting to me, you go back to the 1930s and the great economist John Maynard Keynes said, well, we're going to move toward a 10-hour work week because we're going to become so productive and people right now are meeting their, most people are meeting their basic needs. And what he did not anticipate is the way, way in which we kept ramping up the needs. And the needs, you know, back in the 1930s were food and housing and water. And now it's iPhones and cars and refrigerators and trips to Barcelona. <laughs> I mean, all of these things have become essential needs. Right. And, and so we need to scale back those essential needs and open up the space for uh, how we how how we think about our happiness, our fulfillment, our flourishing uh, in in a more sophisticated way. I mean, honestly, I am doing a lot of this now. I have reached an age where many of my peers are retiring. I don't ever imagine retiring because I always chose to do work that I love to do mm. and to stop doing that work seems self-destructive. Yeah. But on the other hand, I do feel like opening up some personal space to explore more of these issues that I've kept putting off would be a valuable thing for my life. So I, I think we struggle with this and 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 I feel like until everybody in our areas, and let's just start with our localities, mm. until everyone has those basic needs met, I feel like those of us who have some more privilege and more wealth, we've got to invest what we can to help them reach that basic level. And then all of us have the ability to reach a level higher. Yeah. It's funny because two of them, I was scribbling furiously, well, not furiously, captivatedly at the, uh, at the summit and two of the phrases from your talk that I loved among many, many phrases, but two that really jumped out that I wanted to raise today was, don't be surprised when the world goes to hell if you invest your money in hell. Blimey, that's really clear, like punchy, yes. And the second one, which kind of was after that and constructive in this, this way that really kind of hit home was changing how you move your money 
is critical to how you change your world. And I love this idea of moving your own money and changing your world. And you're talking about proximity and place. And these phrases really spoke to me about what perhaps sits at the heart of your work and your ethos. And I'm curious, before we dive into the local economies and how we can put our money where our lives are, what is it that led you to be doing the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I'll give you a glib answer and then a more serious answer. The glib answer is is that I have worked very hard since 1982 to avoid the practice of law, which I knew I would detest and would bring my life down. The, The more sophisticated answer is that I guess I've been on a journey, and the journey has been how to connect the local with the global. Mm-hmm. And when I first was graduated from law school in 1982, I set up a nonprofit called the Center for Innovative Diplomacy. And among the things that we did, and we lasted for about 10 years, oh. we organized several thousand mayors and city council members in the United States to get involved in rather edgy foreign policy issues, like divestment (laughs) from South Africa, nuclear Mm. free zones, sister cities with Nicaragua and El Salvador, um, fighting the Cold War through uh, nuclear free zones. I mean, it it was great stuff. And over time, we moved into the environment and we launched another organization that still exists called ICLE, the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives, which has about a thousand cities that are members and they share state-of-the-art environmental protection technology and policy. Uh, And then in economic development, and I started working with a group based in The Hague called Townsend Development, which was infusing sister city and twinning relationships with real content. And they were trying to get economic development right. And I wrote a book about Townsend Development, I guess this was in the late 1980s, and One of the things that I observed is that the northern country would consider it a great accomplishment when they sent their corporation to a southern partner and and were providing jobs. And to me, this economic paradigm was fundamentally flawed. And I realized I couldn't keep working internationally until I figured out principles and practices for economic development that I felt had greater integrity. Mm -hmm. So I pulled back from working internationally, and that's when I started the work on local economies. And each book that I've done, and there's now five of them, in a way builds on the previous one because you answer some questions, and then there's questions you can't answer. And The next book tries to get at those harder questions. And where I am in this journey now, I feel, is really in two places. One is in decoding and fixing what are often called securities laws Hmm. that stand in the way of individuals putting their money into local business and projects. And then the other piece is decentralization, broadly speaking. Um, the way in which that unless you're living in Switzerland, almost all national governments hoard power Hmm. 
and makes it difficult for communities to solve their own problems. So how do we fix that? Mm. Bringing it back to the core of local economies and local finance, can you tell us a bit about what that is and what are the biggest barriers to flourishing local finance models and systems? Yeah, so let me start with the U.S. example (laughs) and stipulate that I know this example is not perfectly applicable to every country, but um, and it's certainly not applicable to countries with very limited income and limited wealth. <laughs> but it is somewhat applicable to more developed countries of Europe, Canada, Australia, Japan, and so forth. When you look at the economies of these developed countries, you, there's a couple of generalizations that we can make. The first is is that a huge percentage of the jobs are in locally owned business. In the United States, it's 60 to 80 percent, depending on how you define local. In most countries in Europe, it is higher. It is definitely higher in Canada and Australia. Second, we know that these businesses are critical for economic development. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is that locally owned businesses spend more of their money locally. They have relationships. Mm -hmm. And so they have higher multiplier effects, if I can use an economic term. And we know that if from a bunch of studies in the United States, when you look at two similar kinds of businesses one locally owned, one not, or two industries, one locally owned, one not, the locally owned business or industry will generate two to four times the jobs, income, and wealth effects as the non-locally owned business or industry. So it's a huge difference. That's huge. We also know, and there's been some interesting studies in the U.S. on this, that locally owned businesses are really good for social equality. And we have a study that our Federal Reserve branch in Atlanta did on counties across the United States. And in those counties with the highest density of locally owned business, there is the highest per capita income growth rate. So in other words, if you want to bring down poverty and raise social equality, helping local businesses thrive is the best way of doing so. So that's kind of one piece of background. Let me give one a third piece of background, which is that we also know that locally owned businesses, at least once they get past the startup phase of the first few years, they are incredibly resilient and highly profitable. And there is a study that I frequently cite from Canada that shows that the most profitable businesses are locally owned with 10 to 20 employees, and the least profitable businesses are publicly traded companies on the Toronto Stock Exchange. (laughs) So given the fact that local businesses are most of the economy, they're the most important businesses for economic development, and they're highly profitable, we would expect that everyone is putting their money into them. And in fact, no one is putting any money into them. (laughs) Yeah. It is a shocking realization. And as you saw uh, at the conference, I asked the 500 attendees of Planet Local two questions. One was, 
How many of you do your banking at a local bank or credit union? And about 5% of the hands went up. And the other question was, anyone with long-term savings, how many of you put 1% in local business? And again, about 5% of the hands go up. So if the attendees of Planet Local can't seem to figure out how to get their investments in alignment with your values, you can be sure this is a universal problem. Yeah. So... To me, that now we circle back to uh, the quote that you uh, heard me say. I won't get it right exactly, but yeah, if you keep putting your money into the global economy <laughs> and exclude local businesses which are critical for economic development and critical for social equality and highly profitable, if you keep excluding those as priorities, don't be surprised if the world goes to hell. Hmm. So we've got to fix this problem. Now, it turns out that it's not just that we are foolish. I mean, we are foolish in some ways. But, but, But there are laws that guide us for doing this. So in the United States, and this is where we get a little bit in the weeds, in the United States historically, and this is ever since the Great Depression Mm -hmm. when we enacted securities laws to protect the grassroots investor. And by grassroots investor, I mean anyone except the top 5% in income and wealth in the United States. Those investors, if they want to put a penny into a local business, historically, that local business would have had to commission legal work that would have easily cost that business fifteen, twenty-five, or fifty thousand dollars. Now, it just didn't make sense to do that, right? And Crazy. this was a rather inadvertent effect of protecting the small investor. But one of the things, one of the one of the arguments that I made about this 10 years ago that had, I think, some resonance. As I said, look, the securities lawyers always say, we want to protect grandma from buying swampland in Florida. Great. Let's protect grandma. But my, you know, the grandma in my life, my mother, who at that point was in her 90s, what would she do when she had extra money? She would go to one of a dozen local casinos. And when she goes into a casino, they don't say, Excuse me, Mrs. Schumann, but are you a wealthy gambler? And if you're not wealthy, we're not going to let you play. So we have two systems of risk management. One system called gambling, where we let everyone play and lose everything independent of income. Hmm. And another system called saving your community, where we have people follow these tight laws about what they can and cannot put their money into. We have changed those laws. The the folly of that logic has now become apparent. We have changed those laws. We've made it easier for Americans to put money into local businesses. And, well, we've probably moved about $2 billion into 7,000 local businesses. That's a step. But until we get into the tens of trillions of dollars, the task hasn't been accomplished. So we got a long way to go. 
And so local investment, to just sort of wrap up this very long-winded answer, I mean, local investment is all about figuring out how to pull your money out of the global casino and put it into things that are closer to you. It could be yourself. It could be your kids. It could be your house. It could be a local business. It could be a local nonprofit. It could be a local investment fund. It could be your city, which has issued municipal bonds. So there's a lot of different kinds of local investment out there, but we just need to pull our money out of the casino and put it back into our homes. Being one of the people who did not have her hand raised, (laughs) but wished I had been able to put my hand up, one of the things that I think is really interesting about your work is kind of you give people very tangible, practical advice on what they can do to make these changes. And before we go into your most recent book, Put Your Money Where Your Life Is, I'd love to ask you about the six steps that you mentioned that we can engage in to move towards local investment ecosystems. Do you mind walking us through those? Because I think that's a lovely framework to to gift people. Yeah. So uh, I probably, I should say that uh, you attended a plenary session where I covered six and then at a workshop, I did six more. So I may not remember Ah. the exact six that you heard, but, but let's just talk about the top items. So Mm -hmm. At the very top is education. This, I mean, as our conversation is uncovering, this is an area that people are not very familiar with. <laughs> and there's just an assumption that you have to invest in big global corporations and, and that is your destiny. Yeah. And, and so education is about teaching uh, investors what the alternatives are and teaching businesses that if you're raising capital, there's lots of places you can go, including your customers and your fans and your family, and that may be the best way of financing your business. The second thing on my list was relationship building. And the example that I gave was an organization called LION. LION stands for the Local Investment Opportunity Network of Port Townsend, Washington. (laughs) And Port Townsend is a town of 10,000 people about two hours drive north of Seattle. Mm -hmm. And starting in 2007, they put together a potluck dinner that brought together local businesses and local investors just to get to know one another. And what we forget is that investment is really the manifestation of a good relationship. Hmm. And if you want to do investment, the more personal and engaging you can make it, the less anonymous you can make it, the better it is. Mm. So this little social invention is responsible for $1 million per year of new investment going into local business in a 10,000-person town. To me, that is a model of what we want to do everywhere in the world, is we want to improve the conversations and the relationships between grassroots investors and local businesses. Mm -hmm. The third thing that I mentioned, if I'm remembering correctly, was putting up uh, a website Mm -hmm. and just creating a local list 
available for people in the community to see. Here are businesses that are looking for local investment. And there are sometimes laws that get in the way of this. Uh, Again, securities lawyers find lots of excuses to shut people up. Mm -hmm. But by and large, in the U.S., as long as we're not doing the transactions on these websites, we're just having hyperlinks. And if you want to invest in this company, you go over here. Um, That works out fine. But it lets people know that there are options. So uh, I helped create this site in Baltimore called the Maryland Neighborhood Exchange. And we have had a steady list of BIPOC-run businesses that are listed on what are called national portals where that facilitate lo- local investment. <laughs> and, um, you know, have helped 70 of these companies get finance, um, $4 million of finance from t- 10,000 investors. So it really, I mean, it seems to me every city of any size has an economic development department. Often on those websites, they have exhaustive lists of here are the properties available for businesses that might be interested in siting in our city. Why not just create an additional tab and say, here are the businesses that are looking for capital? Yeah. Cost about 10 bucks and get millions of dollars into your local companies. I mean, I would love that if someone were to set that up. I guess that's also the question is like, who who does that? <laughs> you need some committed people on the ground. Well, you need some committed people on the ground, but it it the, the level of commitment is limited. So I, I, I joke that the Maryland Neighborhood Exchange is a terrible website. It was, in fact, designed by... Uh, my my colleague's um, high school son uh, in a weekend, and that's uh, it looks it yeah. okay. So it's not professional looking, but even a very poorly designed, poorly financed website yeah. can have a positive impact. <laughs> so number four. So I started a newsletter uh, about two years ago called the Main Street Journal. In the U.S., we have the Wall Street Journal, yeah. which is all about global finance. So this is a little bit of the anti-Wall Street Journal idea. Uh, and starting about a month and a half ago, we put into each issue the latest local business offerings uh, that are available for local investment around the country. And usually there's about 30 new offerings per issue. And then on our website, we have all of those offerings pretty easy to find in terms of place or the type of business it is. And again, I think getting sticking this into people's inbox regularly is a way of reminding them there are options, ways of doing local investing. So then we can get into more exotic things <laughs> like creating funds, um, and we're, we're, you know, it's taken us a while to figure out what are the nooks and crannies in U.S. law that we can exploit, that communities can exploit to create funds. And the advantage of funds is that right now to do local investing requires a lot of work. You as an individual or maybe you as part of a local investment group, you have to go and interview companies, you have to 
think about what your portfolio is going to look like. You have to manage that portfolio. Your money might be tied up for a while. Mm. And what a fund will do is outsource some of that to someone who hopefully has some expertise. And then you have some degree of diversification of your portfolio. So if one company goes bad, you don't lose everything. And some degree of what we call liquidity so that I can pull money in and out of the fund regularly as I need to for other purposes. <laughs> and I, I think that um, figuring out how to create local investment funds is a very important part of our mission. And here I will say that um, I have identified some uh, funding in the United Kingdom to start looking at the laws in the United Kingdom to identify where are some of the opportunities, unexploited opportunities mm. for creating community investment funds. So I'm looking forward to doing that work next. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, because it's not something you really hear much about. And when, when you mentioned earlier also about local banks, I can't think of anywhere where we have local building societies. Everything's been kind of taken to the national level. So it's actually quite hard to, and with funds, I know some financial advisors who are working increasingly with uh, millennials and Gen Zs who are putting greater pressure on them to provide ethical funds. And so now they're starting to have to respond, but they haven't necessarily gotten to the point where they're like, these are ethical local funds, here you go. So yeah, that sounds exciting. Right. Yeah. And there are credit unions. So that's, that may be the place to look. But credit unions are often very small and limited in what they can do. But it's something yeah. that you you know might put your money in. Here's, here's an interesting factoid that I've <laughs> discovered in the United States, which is when you put a dollar on deposit in a local bank or credit union, it is three times more likely to be lent to a local business than a dollar put on deposit in a big bank like Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase. Oh. And there are reasons, there are logical reasons why that happens, but it's why putting it in a small local institution really does matter yeah. a lot. Yeah. Okay, so your final point, I believe, was going to be something around bonds. Bonds, yes. So, <laughs> in the, so this is something that, you know, the authority of localities around the world to do this is really changes a lot from place to place. In the United States, cities are allowed to issue debt notes to do interesting projects, and we call them municipal bonds. And um, the way that bonds are usually done is that a city will enter into an agreement with a big investment bank like Goldman Sachs and they'll take a huge fee and hmm. then the bonds go out onto a global market and that's the end of it. What a few cities have done is say, what if we take down the price of these uh, things? So rather than, you know, like for the Goldman Sachs bonds, maybe the minimum purchase is $50,000. So what if we take that down to $1,000 and allow any grassroots investor to put money into these bonds? What we can do is we start inspiring people who live in the community to support those projects they really care about. So 
the example that I gave at the Planet Local Conference was we have in the United States about 50 so-called green banks. These are funds that have been created by state and local authorities, but only one of them has used this idea of grassroots municipal bonds. So the state, the Green Bank of Connecticut about two years ago said, we want to raise money to put solar electric cells on the roofs of low-income houses. They, the bonds were for $25 million. And there was so much demand for those bonds, they sold out the issue in 48 hours. 48 hours? That's extraordinary. And then from the perspective, because I know very little about finance, which is why it's great to have you in conversation, getting an education here. When it comes to people buying bonds, what do they, when they're investing in it, what do they hope to get back from it? Well, usually, you know, there's, there's an interest rate associated with the bond that, so you will get the interest and the principal over time paid back. And, you know, there's different formulas for how that will get paid. Okay. But yeah, it's not a charitable gift. It it definitely is an investment. Usually because municipal bonds are low risk, mm-hmm. uh, they have rather low payoffs. Uh, and it's only when municipal bonds get riskier, sometimes we call them junk bonds, that they pay huh. extraordinary interest rates, but they have a very high rate of default. Mm-hmm. So I guess, where do you want to go next with this? Because there's so many places we could go. What are you most excited about at the moment? What's top of the list on your, on your mind? Well, so um, if, we, if we tiptoe to the uh, workshop that I did and a couple of the items we talked about there, let me mention two that I think are particularly interesting. So one is um, that... There is a way that you can usually avoid all of the nastiness of securities law and get money into the hands of a local business. And that way is called (laughs) pre-purchasing. So uh, I'll give you an example. When COVID hit, uh, I wrote a blog on my... um, on my website uh, saying, you know, support your local business, adopt a local business. So I adopted Mm. uh, a business, at that point I was living in Maryland, called Busboys and Poets. And I went to the proprietor and I said, okay, COVID's a really hard time. I'm going to write you a check for $1,000. And I would like you to just give me $1,000 of gift cards and I will spend that money over time. So I purchased in advance $1,000 of food from Busboys and Poets. Hmm. The proprietor, Andy Shalal, was so pleased that he gave me not 1000 but $1,200 worth of gift cards. Aww. So I got a 20% rate of return on my investment. <laughs> What's cool about this investment, though, is that Generally speaking, in the U.S. context, it's not a security. So all of the stuff that I told you earlier about having to pay lawyers an enormous amount of money, having to do a whole thing around investment crowdfunding, no, you don't have to do any of that. So this becomes then an interesting way of a business testing the waters about whether or not 
it's it would be a successful offering if they were to raise more capital hmm. from the public. So rather than like, you know, going through, I'm going to raise a million dollars from the public, maybe they do a pre-sale of $100,000 and you build up an audience and get people excited and then you do the million dollar hmm. raise of capital. So that's one thing. The other thing that I'll mention is that we're seeing some jurisdictions that have tax power hmm. use that tax power as a way of incentivizing local investment. So probably about seven or eight years ago, the Canadian province of New Brunswick enacted a 50% tax credit, provincial tax credit. So every dollar you put into a local business in New Brunswick, you got 50 cents off of your taxes, your provincial taxes. Great incentive. Yeah. And so I've been sort of spreading this around in the U.S. and finally caught the ears of some people in Michigan, uh, specifically Republicans. Like the Republican state legislators who hate taxes, love tax credits, they thought this is great. So they um, put into... um, legislative form, a 50% tax credit for local investment in Michigan. Now, the Republicans got ousted from power two years ago, so the Democrats have reintroduced the same bill. Um, And I think there's no question that it's going to be signed. It's a very, has lots of bipartisan support. But these kinds of incentives just really start to push people and investment advisors and anyone who's paying attention to investment to start taking local investment more seriously. Mm. This is very exciting. So I think one of the other things I want to ask you about in your book, The Local Economy Solution, which offers some of these alternative approaches that states and cities can nurture new, new kinds of businesses. And one of the terms that you use is pollinator businesses. What are pollinator businesses and how do we create more of them? I appreciate the question. And the idea of a pollinator business is to say, let's not do economic development the old way that just taps into public money and is an expenditure. Let's think about how to transform acts of economic development into businesses so that we can do a lot more with a lot less. Uh, And I'll give you an example. So you look at um, entrepreneurship training programs. Most entrepreneurship training programs are underwritten by public money. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no revenue structure associated with it. Well, an example of a revenue-driven entrepreneurship program is... Uh, in the country of Paraguay, a foundation there, Fundacio Paraguaya, set up a high school to train um, young adults how to do food businesses. Wow. So every person who comes to this special high school gets experience with 16 types of business. Uh, It might be a restaurant or a hotel or a food processing business or a dairy. Hmm. And these are not phony baloney businesses. They're real businesses. They sell things. They have 
a revenue structure, and those revenues cover the cost of the high school. Wow. Now, that's a very cool design that enables lots of places to set up high schools like this. Yeah. Brilliant. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it solves one issue by connecting it to another and then lifting both and probably more. Yes. And really, when you look at most of what economic development does. So, you know, it's maybe providing capital. Well, we know how to do that profitably with global business. Uh, Maybe it's creating partnerships among businesses. Well, usually partnerships among businesses reduce costs. So, for example, you have in Tucson, Arizona, uh, an organization called Tucson Originals. It's a group of 100 restaurants that collectively buy food and and dishes and equipment together. And by buying in bulk together, they bring down their costs and they're more competitive. Amazing. So that's a that's a kind of neat design. Or maybe it's around placemaking. And I have a friend, Gilbert Roche-Coust in Melbourne, who works has worked with a thousand cities oh, wow. and has turned placemaking into a very profitable profession. To help what is placemaking? So placemaking is 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 basically taking spaces that are being under or poorly utilized mm-hmm. and making them into something better. So his crown jewel was remaking the alley or laneways of Melbourne. And those laneways had been historically just places where people put out trash and Mm -hmm. they were places where all kinds of pathology, social pathologies would happen, crime, drugs, mischief. And (laughs) by opening up the alleyways to pedestrian traffic, they were now filled with restaurants and performers and gardens and so forth. It has brought these areas alive. So rather than being negatives, they're real positives for the city. Mm. And it turns out that, you know, most cities have paid no attention to this, but people care about beauty. People do care about beauty a lot. When you see beauty in a city, you stay there longer. So if there's beauty in a lane way, you're more likely to linger, you're more likely to buy a cup of coffee and uh, maybe pay to listen to some music. Yeah. Again, so we're, we go back to where we started our conversation. You know, economic development is very focused on this lowest set of needs in Mas- Maslow's hierarchy. Hmm. But where it gets more successful is when it starts approaching matters of the heart and the soul. Hmm. It's beautiful. One of the... Um, so. It's curious, as you, as you mentioned that, one of my favourite stories, my parents live in southern Spain near Marbella, because my dad's from Gibraltar originally, so he's close to his family there. In one of the local towns, which was very run down, you know, all the way along the costa, there's kind of like in other parts of the world as well, there are areas that are quite impoverished, especially when they're these old ports. Anyway, one of these places, the mayor came in and he decided that he would invest money in putting pots of flowers on the sides of houses. And people were like, you're fucking mad. Why would you do that? That's a waste of money. What are you doing? We're already poor enough as it is. 50% unemployment rate. You know, it's just it's a waste of money in inverted commas. Anyway, since that time, 
because people responded to the beauty of it and they started taking care and they started adding their own plants and they would look after them. You know, obviously in southern Spain, it gets extremely hot in the summer. So to keep this project going, people would have to really pay attention to and water and care for the plants. Off the back of this initially extremely unpopular project, this whole area has been redeveloped. And there are now another set of problems. I mean, it's, it's, the work is never done, where um, you have five-star hotels now opening up and squares that attract tourists because they're like, this is one of the prettiest places in Spain. Go visit. Local employment has gone up because more restaurants and shops have opened. And so there's this kind of, it's this idea that you have to somehow approach the problem from this old, tired way in which we've always approached it. And actually, if you take the reverse route and say, well, actually, what if we make this a more beautiful place to live? Then often the effects are much better and longer lasting and people care more. Absolutely. And, and I, I, I see so many examples of this. Uh, part of what placemaking invites is residents who live there to get involved in the process. Yeah. And they have stories to tell. And part of the placemaking process is, okay, how do we build your stories, your history, your culture mm. into this place so that others who come visit get elements of that? And that is a, it's a very exciting process for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the most exciting projects that you're seeing now that are coming out of this kind of global local movement, local economies, local financing? What are the things that are most exciting to you? Well, I think it's the innovations around local finance that I see in various countries and then people are sharing them with one another. And if I just like compare the United States and Canada, we're neighbors but we often don't talk much to one another. And we, we in the U.S. were way ahead of the Canadians in our investment crowdfunding, and they learned from that. And then what we have learned from, I mean, the example that I gave is uh, of how we learned from the tax credit of New Brunswick. Mm. But there's like two other innovations that I think we're learning from too. One is uh, in Alberta and British Columbia, they have co-ops for investors. Now, we typically do co-ops for uh, buyers or consumers or for workers or for producers, but we don't usually do it for investors. And so it's a very interesting model and a way of creating, a new way of creating uh, an investment fund. Or another example is uh, in Nova Scotia, in 1998, they created community pension funds, hmm. uh, and there are now 70 of them operating, and they're wonderful models for us to bring to the United States. So it's that kind of cross-pollination that I think is really exciting. And I do feel like um, every country I go to, I find little things that are very exciting that I feel like a little, I sometimes I feel like I'm Noah. I create, (laughs) I I take two of every kind, shove it in the ark and try to share it with other people. So like I'm going to, going to Bristol, there were a couple of things that I thought were really exciting. Like Bristol had a, not a municipal fund, but another development fund Mm -hmm in order to develop a lot of affordable housing and outside properties and 
grassroots investors could put money into that fund. I want to learn more about that. Uh, I also, the person I did the workshop with at the conference is named Amy Robinson. She was from Triados Bank. And Triados really has no analog in the United States. And mm-hmm. it, it should be there because um, they have such a great sense of mission in the work that they're doing. Yeah, yeah. So then on the flip side, what's your most pressing concern? What are the biggest challenges or worries that you have in this space? Well, so to take it back to your very, very first question in this interview, uh, which is, what is your emotional state about humanity? Hmm. I do think that it is highly unlikely that we will survive as a species. I mean, I I give us 10 or 20% probability. But that 10 or 20% probability to me is enough to like just stay focused on that and keep organizing and hope for the best because that's all we can do. So I, I don't know whether that makes me an optimist or a pessimist, but I do feel like we are in a race with a bunch of horrible, horrible problems yeah. um, that we have failed to address. And let's just take climate, okay? Because I feel I feel like we know how to fix the climate problem. Hmm. I mean, we can't undo all the damage we've done easily, but we know how to bring ourselves and our economies to a state that is consistent with long-term well-being in the climate. And here's, here's how, which is that if every community in the world becomes more self-reliant, we collectively put a lot fewer burdens on the planet. Yeah. Uh, we do more of our own agriculture in a healthy way. We do less shipping, unnecessary shipping of goods. We are self-reliant on renewable energy, so we're not using as many fossil fuels. And I feel like we know how to do all of that. Yeah. What's necessary, I think, to speed it up is to share more innovation. So what I was talking about with investment is I think true more broadly about innovative business models. So before I stop working, I'm going to implement my, my sort of legacy <laughs> project that I'll ride off in the sunset with is called the Locopedia. And it's to create an international database open source database of small scale business models so that every community can see how they can become self-reliant in everything in a competitive way. That sounds amazing. And those models exist. We just haven't shared them properly. Yeah. Again, it's that kind of joining of the dots, which is one of the things that Planet Local really made crystal clear to me. It's just there's so many people in this room doing such interesting work, important work, moving the needle in local ways and fundamental ways. And it's just about making those channels of communication visible to one another so that we can share resources, ideas, case studies, tools. And have fun along the way because... Yeah, totally. You you can't... I mean, even though... As I said, the chances that we're going to succeed are not great. You got to focus on that and and have fun doing it. And that keeps you alive and active. Coming to this last part of this conversation then and talking about that side of things and the slim chances of us, you know, progressing as a species or surviving. When you're leaning into this work, because it's very easy for 
for folks who are not doing this, like I, I'm not doing this kind of work, I look to people like you and I think, ah, that gives me a sense of inspiration and solace and there's a model that I can approach or like path that I can take to, to help support people. And you give other folks a source of hope and, and optimism. And so when it comes to your own work in the face of all of these wicked problems, how do you orient yourself towards beauty and hope and life when things get tough? Yeah, I mean, it sometimes is tough, but um, I, I try to approach things with a, with a sense of humor. <laughs> Some would say it's gallows humor, yeah. <laughs> but, it's, but it does um, make, me, make me happy. I mean, I'll, 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 so I'll give you an example. So yeah. my intern of sorts, my research associate, is a betta fish that sits to my right. Is a betta fish? A betta fish, a small, beautiful, purpley betta fish. And we have conversations all day. And he has, oh, I think, hilarious. a great sense of humor for a betta fish. <laughs> but it's, you know, these kinds of wacky things. My nickname, by the way, is Moose. And I collect moose artifacts everywhere. Oh. And again, by seeing the world through moose eyes, it gives me a way of chuckling about things and our situation. So, you know, you, you find these, these ways of just putting, a, putting appropriate prism on reality to make life a little more interesting, a little more amusing. And that carries me through the dark times. That's amazing. I love that. I think I need more moose and fish in my life. <laughs> we all do. Uh, we agree, we agree, Dexter. Um, so if people want to find you, I'm going to link all of your books and your websites into the show notes. But what are the places that you'd like to direct people to if they're listening? Yeah, so the best thing for people to do would be to just subscribe. It's free to the Main Street Journal. So if you go to our website, themainstreetjournal.org, it is uh, it's a Substack newsletter. Just sign up for that. And every two weeks, you will be shocked and amazed at what's going on in the field. Amazing. Okay. Well, that wraps up this part of the conversation. It's just been such a pleasure. You're so wonderful to listen to. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. These were fun questions. And I'm glad we had a chance to bring Dexter into it. It <laughs> makes all the difference. Thank you for listening to Natalie Nahai in Conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to me to read your support, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour our love and time and attention. To find out more about my work and how to get involved in my projects, you can head over to natalinahigh.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahigh.com forward slash resources, and check out the gatherings I run at ffsalons.com. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. My thanks to Caro C for producing, thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.